Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois. And today, folks, we are talking about pumpkins. Our special guest is Nathan Johanning. He is a commercial ag educator. He's based down in Waterloo. But before we get to Nathan, we got to introduce our co-hosts who are here every single week. We are joined by Katie Parker, local foods educator from Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hello, Chris. How's it going? Not not bad. I can say it's not too bad. Um, we got actually got our power bill the other day, and it's like the lowest bill I've ever had because it's just been so mild weather these last few weeks. We haven't had the air on. Even when it got hot, we, we bit the bullet and we didn't turn the air on, and we haven't turned on the heat. So you know what? Life's pretty good right now in our house. Oh, yeah, I know. It's like a competition each month now. How low can we get it to go? <laughs> That's right. All right, just put on another sweater. Put on a hoodie. You're right? fine. Right? <laughs> yeah. You have kids, so you have more to complain, but it's That's... just two in our house. That's true. Well, and my mother-in-law lives with us, too. And, you know, yeah. the, the, the complaint levels, hers is always, you know, always, always up there. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to re- take care of her of course of course as always she's the elder so you know you got to bow down to that yes and of course we are joined by ken johnson horticulture educator in jacksonville hey ken hello chris and katie so we we get our house down pretty cool the only reason we turn the heat on is to to keep the plants okay we don't want to get too cold for them <laughs> forget about the people <laughs> so chris people is worried about <laughs> Chris is worried about his mother-in-law, and you're worried about your plants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my goodness, Ken! How's vacation this week? What What are you doing here? I just I just can't quit you guys. So. <laughs> it's, it's getting me out of cleaning the garage. So. <laughs> <laughs> is everybody on vacation this week in the Johnson uh, household? My wife and I are. We're still making. We're doing homeschooling, so e-learning. So we're still making the kids do that. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna watch TV while they do homework and stuff. So <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Flip that around on them. Well, did you guys, we, we all saw this. It came out in, in our email, the Morning Ag Clips, this uh, email service that uh, sends out kind of these headline agricultural uh, news stories. And this one kind of took us a little bit by surprise. We sort of saw one of the, the things coming, but they're talking about the most popular vegetables grown in the year 2020. And I think we can all guess what the most popular one is, is of course, tomato. Everybody loves tomatoes. It's one of the most common, most popular garden vegetable out there. But there was this other vegetable that um, the this uh, news group surveyed all the major seed companies here in the U.S., and it was turnips. Now, growing up, I had never seen a turnip. I mean, that's just something that's never was never a common thing in my house as a child. With extension... I feel like the breeding has kind of accelerated and improved the turnip flavor and taste. And we grow actually in my garden, Hakurii or uh, Hakuri turnips. Um, It's a white turnip. It's about the size of a golf ball, maybe a bit larger. And it's kind of sweet. So I don't know, Ken, Katie, are, are you guys eating turnips in your house? I don't think I've ever eaten a turnip before, so no. Yeah, me neither. We uh, use them as cover crops, but after hearing you guys talk, I think we're going to have to start growing them for consumption. I did bring them to a Thanksgiving meal. Um, that was back in 2015, maybe. 
And it was requested that I bring it every single year after that. So people really liked it. We we roasted them in, um, you know, we took a, a healthy vegetable and roasted them in, in bacon grease. So, uh, of course, it was good. Yeah, really popular. And our producer, Wendy, she was talking uh, before the show about how uh, from from her local CSA, she's been getting these uh, these turnips, these sweet turnips, and she just cuts them up raw on, puts them on a salad. May, may have to look into that next year. Usually we try to grow something new every year, so maybe next year will be turnips if we can find seeds. They are a lot of fun to grow. My kids um, really enjoy pulling them out of the ground. That's like the best part if you're a kid in gardening is pulling something out of the ground and finding it there. So I actually have a video of them doing that. I will, I'll post that video in the notes below of my kids just pulling turnips out of the ground and getting super excited. This is when they were younger and gardening with dad was cool. And we want to welcome our special guest to the show, uh, Nathan Johanning. He's a commercial ag educator based down in Waterloo. That's uh, southern Illinois, not too far away from uh, kind of the East St. Louis area, um, kind of between there and Carbondale. So, Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate uh, joining you guys today. Well, we are happy to have you here. And I, I guess, Nathan, you know, Ken and Katie haven't haven't had turnips before. Have you ever eaten a turnip before? I have. So I, while I'm not, uh, maybe not as dedicated to the turnip as you are, Chris, I, I will have a turnip usually every fall. It's, uh, I'm very seasonal with my vegetables. So it's got, you know, the fall is, uh, is turnip season to me, you know, spring and summer and stuff. It's more that, you know, late fall, winter vegetable. But no, I, I'll have, you know, probably at least a couple every year. It depends on where I can find a couple. But I'm not a dedicated turnip grower by any means. But if I can find some from the farmer's market or a friend that has a few, I'll, I'll eat a few. But I, I will say that it is nice getting some of the sweet ones, like you mentioned, are definitely good. Some of the ones can get a little overwhelming if they have a little stronger flavor to them. I'm not as crazy about those. But certainly, certainly I'll, I'll eat a few turnips, but nothing too crazy. Yeah, I, I, hopefully the folks weren't too disappointed that, that bought turnip seed and grew it. And if you let it go a little too far, uh, get them too big, they do get pretty spicy. Um, you, I don't know, that, that, that kind of is not in my palate range. But we have Nathan here to talk about pumpkins. Before we get to that, though, we want to learn a little bit more about you, Nathan. And I, I will just start out by saying um, Nathan was the instructor for me down in uh, down in Carbondale, so I was taking uh, crop physiology. Nathan, you were TAing for was it Dr. Walters? Yes, I was TAing for Dr. Walters. I believe that was uh, he was actually gone on sabbatical that year, so he was overseas and just left me with all of his classes and <laughs> things to do while I was a graduate student. So that's been a few years ago, but I I remember it well and enjoyed it. And ironically, learned a lot doing all of that. Um, that's kind of actually come in handy. So I learned a lot in that class too, and I, I yeah I remember never seeing Dr. Walters, but Nathan, you led every class. And and folks listening, crop physiology, what was it a level four hundred class? Probably one of the more higher levels that we had to take as ag students there. Yeah, it was it was. Uh... PLSS 409, so it was a 400 level required by all um, by all plant and soils uh, ma majors. So no, it was uh, it was definitely an intimidating challenge as uh, being early in my graduate school career to just kind of get handed this. But we we all survived one way or another. So well, Nathan, you did a fantastic job. You 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 raised me and and 
<laughs> so to speak, in the world of plants. Um, so I, I, I went to Carbondale, and Nathan was a few years ahead of me, and so always looking up to Nathan. Um, so I, I'm curious, Nathan, what what led you in the direction of um, where you're at right now as a commercial ag educator? And I know um, you you also do have a uh, your personal farm uh, where you raise pumpkins. And, and um, so tell me a little bit about your background and, and maybe career path in case someone listening is like, hey, I kind of want to do something like that. Sure. Well, um, you know, I went to school in Carbondale and uh, beyond doing some teaching, like we mentioned, I also worked in research. I did a lot of work research in vegetable production and also some in weed management in both vegetable and field crops. So I spent about uh, five or six years after I got my degree, my master's degree down at SIU uh, working research, and that was definitely eye-opening and gave me a lot of insight into the background and, and crop production and, and some of the kind of cutting edge of some of these different concepts that we can use in production of all kinds of crops. So. Uh, and so that's really inspired me. Of course, I grew up on uh, on a family farm and where I still raise uh, pumpkins today. So that was um, definitely a, a great thing that has kind of probably overall shaped my career trajectory. And from there, um, after I uh, after I stopped at SIU, I had, at that point I had found an opening with Extension. This was actually down in Murfreesboro, so right nearby as a local foods educator and so started there for around six or seven years before I switched to a commercial ag educator up here in Waterloo which is conveniently enough uh, in the same county as where our farm is so that made trying to uh, be closer to family and the farm a lot easier so I guess that's kind of in short my uh, kind of trajectory I did actually have an opportunity while I, before I started graduate school, to do a kind of a an internship um, with a pumpkin farm actually south of Carbondale that raised wholesale pumpkins. They had like 27 acres of pumpkins, and so they were using some some of the some of the practices I use in soil conservation and no-till and things. And so that um, seeing that was probably one of the inspiring parts as far as the pumpkin production side because it gave me a good concept of how you would grow a couple of pumpkin plants in your garden compared with how you need to manage it on a very efficient scale on a larger acreage. So um, while I never, I, I vow at this point in my life to never grow 27 acres of pumpkins, I started from I think a half acre of pumpkins, this would be probably 15 years ago, up to having five acres now. And five acres of pumpkins, whenever you uh, don't have a, a huge labor force or anything to help you, is definitely manageable, but it keeps a person busy. So. And Nathan, you have produced a couple videos that show the kind of that planting process. And I think this is so fascinating. You, you talk about no-till planting, planting into uh, cover crop residue. Um, and using like a, I think it was a water wheel planter. Is that what it was? Yeah, we ha actually have a, a no-till uh, transplanter, and uh, and yeah, we had, had done a couple of videos on just on the transplanter, and then we actually have some other trials. We have some not only on pumpkins, we have some stuff looking at tomatoes and peppers even in some no-till systems, and so we've constantly trying to share that information, and and so certainly we're 
on the Local Foods Small Farms uh, YouTube channel, we have, I'm trying to post various updates on uh, no-till cover crop type issues and things that I've uh, observed or found interesting. So no, I've, uh, um, I think that has a lot of a lot of potential, especially for certain crops. Pumpkins is one I think is a really good good fit with some of these no-till and cover crop systems. So, we will post a link to that in the the description below to link to those videos. Um, Nathan, this time of year, we have people like pretty much every weekend, sometimes weekdays, headed to the pumpkin patch, and they are looking to pick the perfect pumpkin. I had to say that real slow. What tips can you give to consumers uh, that, say, might be going to, to your farm or to a, a farm in their local area to pick the, the perfect pumpkin? Uh, I think picking the perfect pumpkin has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of layers to it. But I think, you know, first thing you want to look at a, a, a healthy pumpkin. So what does that mean? Uh, I always like to see something that has, you know, a, a really good color. Now, granted, it doesn't have to be orange. There's all kinds of, you know, really winter squashes and other things that we use as, as ornamentals, even though they're really edible uh, at heart, as most of these are. But uh, so certainly look for something. You want to make sure there's no uh, no major, um, you know, open spots that are, uh, you know, would potentially rot. Um, now, granted, you can have a lot of scars and other things that are, if they if they look healed over or kind of you know scabbed over and, and they're not you know wet or don't look opened or fresh, you know um, those will usually heal up because you know there is uh, the perfect pumpkin really is in the eye of the beholder and some of those scars and can actually add character versus. Um, you know, being a detriment to that fruit. And because they do grow out in the field, you know, the vine sometimes will wrap over them and put a little kind of dent on one side, or you'll see a little bit of a ground spot from where they laid on the ground and things. So, so certainly, um, you know, usually there's always at least one good face on, on a pumpkin side of it. So, you know, look for that. Not all of them are completely symmetrical all the way around. And the other thing, look at the stem. You know, the stem shouldn't be completely shriveled up. It should have, you know, a, a pretty good stem on it that, uh, you know, of course, that is, uh, although is somewhat superficial to the fruit, it is, it gives that iconic characteristic look to the fruit and all kinds of different pumpkin varieties have different stem characteristics. Um, there's some that have really long um, kind of curving, twisting stems that really add a lot of class to that, just the look whenever you first take a glance. At, uh, at that fruit. So I think that's probably the, uh, the biggest thing, you know, find something that you like and then, you know, look for, uh, you know, make sure that's just the fruit looks solid and you don't have any, you know, major open areas as far as that could be a potential that would cause it to rot. So if you do find that perfect one and it's, you know, especially from a local farm and those plants have been healthy and that have grown it and that plant was, you know, especially alive and growing when that fruit was harvested, pumpkins can really keep a long time. The biggest question I get often is, is even now, will, will this pumpkin keep to Halloween? And usually my standard answer, even in September, is I said, more than likely, I said, that pumpkin should keep well beyond Christmas unless it freezes. So if you leave on your front porch and it freezes solid, then it's kind of game over. But, but really pumpkins, uh, most pumpkins, if they're healthy, uh, will keep, uh, will keep a long time. Are there any other suggestions that you have other than, um, not allowing your pumpkin to freeze that would help to make 
our pumpkins last longer? I think I think the the freezing part is probably the biggest part. Sometimes uh, you know I've heard people ask about you know uh, washing them with like a like a solution with a bleach water and things. I I mean certainly you can, and it won't hurt anything. However, I just in my experience, you know, I've had pumpkins in some cases that have even kept, you know, over a year and I know I haven't done anything like that to them specifically. So, um, for the most part, um, although you can sanitize the outside, if there is a, you know, an issue with that, uh, that fruit and it's, uh, it's quality, oftentimes just sanitizing the outside isn't going to prevent that. So occasionally you can get infections and things that are maybe not seen right at first and that will, you know, over time will, uh, will show up and, and not every pumpkin will last for say six or eight months. Um, but certainly, uh, certainly some of them can, um, you know, certainly last easily a month or two. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, if they're buying a pumpkin from me, you know, uh, there should be no problem, you know, getting to last easily through Thanksgiving um, with some minor exceptions. You can't always say that with every fruit, but, but really there's, you know, a lot of it goes, I feel goes back to the, the growing side of it versus what the consumer does with it afterwards. One other thing I will note is that, Pumpkins, especially when you have some of the heat that we've had uh, in, in direct sun, uh, they can sunburn. Some, some varieties are worse than others. So if your pumpkin display is out in, say, on the south face of a house and gets direct sun, oftentimes you will um, you'll see in some cases that color, especially in the orange ones, will tend to bleach a little bit and kind of fade. And occasionally you can even get a little bit of a sunburn spot. That has more to do about... Um, that fruit not being you know sun ready if it's grown under a nice leaf canopy and then all of a sudden you pull it out and we have you know some you know 85 90 degree days uh, with direct sunshine where they sit out in direct sun when they're not used to it that can that can cause a few problems so that's just something about um how you manage them that doesn't mean you can't put a display in the sun because that's obviously a great place to put it but just i tell people know that that's a potential and just kind of plan accordingly. But most of the time, it'll be all right. But you will see a little bit of fading in the color, and that's normal. All right, so when it comes to pumpkin, usually we kind of lump them into kind of the jack-o'-lantern, more ornamental, and then pie pumpkins. Um, so can you use your jack-o'-lantern pumpkins for making pies for, for eating, and vice versa? Could you use a pie pumpkin as a jack-o'-lantern to make jack-o'-lanterns? So that's a really good question. So one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the the ideal, or I guess I say, what you would find in the store uh, for pumpkin is not does not come from your standard orange jack-o'-lantern pumpkin. There's actually a uh, a different species within the cucurbit family um, that is more of a tan kind of buckskin color. Um, the the actual variety they use out in the field is is more elongated um and more longer in nature kind of lays on its side they're tan color they're actually in the cucurbit uh cucurbit machata family versus a cucurbit pipo which would be your standard jack-o'-lantern as far as their uh specific species um so you can use jack-o'-lantern pumpkins um so there's nothing wrong with it you know most of our jack-o'-lanterns a lot of these specialty pumpkins which are more in the winter squash family also are very good um, for using for pumpkin. 
I don't like using a jack lanterns although I can remember at, you know, when we didn't have the other, other types of pumpkin that uh, even my grandmother and others cooking up jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. The, the flesh on a jack-o'-lantern, of course, is kind of like a, like a mild kind of yellow color and uh, maybe a whitish yellow, a little bit stringy. The other species, the more of the processing type, those tan pumpkins, are actually have a really bright, deep orange flesh. It isn't nearly as stringy. It's a lot finer and I think has a lot higher eating quality. It's a little more similar to a butternut squash in, in the internal appearance of it. Um, so that's my personal preference. And I think a lot of people that at my markets, I get more and more people that uh, ask specifically for a pumpkins for baking. And I direct them that route. And most people come back again either the next year or even the next week and say, hey, I want another one of those or something. Some of the winter squash or kushaws in some areas, those are what people prefer for making pumpkin pies. It's kind of regional or maybe even what your family grew up in for those that do make uh, their pumpkin from scratch. So there are some other things, but I do tend to steer people away from using their jack-o'-lantern, but you can. Uh, I just feel like there's other things out there that have even higher quality and will give you a lot, a lot better results and you'll be happier with. Well, this is also a, a question and answer show, questions submitted by the listeners. Uh, so we do solicit for questions on, on Facebook, uh, all the social medias, and then also folks do call into our extension offices with, with questions. Uh, so, uh, Nathan, we did ask uh, about for requesting questions about pumpkins, so wondering if you'd be able to answer some of these for us. Sure, I'll give it a shot. All right. Well, this first one comes from Facebook, and it's kind of a, a broad question, uh, but uh, they want they want to try to grow pumpkins next year, and they want some advice that you could give for someone growing pumpkins for the first time. And I I know that's a lot of stuff to unpack right there, especially for uh, for you know someone who does this professionally. Um, I might maybe just modify that and say, you know. What's what's like one or two things you wish that you knew before you started growing pumpkins? What are some key like two key things to know? Um, I would say the first thing is do a little research and know some about managing pests. Uh, weeds are certainly an issue, so it depends on the scale of which you're doing doing this and what you can manage. But certainly, you need to manage weeds, insects, and diseases, or have a plan to do that. So there are some very significant um, pests in all three of those categories that can be very problematic. And while I tell people a lot of times you can get the first year can be a honeymoon year. So I've heard guys say, well, I just did this and this and they just grew just fine. And I don't know why people go through all this trouble. But it seems to never fail that the second year in there on out, then they start to have issues, which would make sense when we talk about crop rotations and other things. So, you know, if there's not pumpkins in the area, some of those pests and things may not be as prevalent or they may come in later in the season enough that you can still get a good crop. But um, but that's the that's one of the main things. So just do a little homework on that. That could be a whole topic in and of itself. So I won't go into more details on that. The other thing is be very specific and look into what varieties you grow. There are literally hundreds of different pumpkins and slash fall ornamental varieties out there and their performance can range from, you know, really good to, you know, really disappointing. So 
so knowing that, um, look into some companies that have you know very specific pumpkin markets. Um, not discounting some of the uh, some of the uh, companies that just you know throw a few pumpkins into their catalog, but there are some that really specialize in that. And the selection of varieties that you have to choose from is is way greater, and a lot of the oftentimes the performance can also uh, be greater as well. So. Overall, you know, I always tell people for the highest quality pumpkin fruit, you need to take care of those plants. So you need to have a healthy plant and always, always harvest a pumpkin off of a living, healthy, happy plant. You know, if your plant, you know, wilts and dies in the middle of August and you see some orange fruit, because there'll be orange out there, but you'll see that those, the stems on them are all shriveled up and you cut them and you think you have something, it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is a pumpkin, right? A lot of times after a week or so, you'll feel them, they'll start to get a little bit soft and squishy. You know, even, um, even up until just a few weeks ago when we, uh, well, about a week ago or so, we had a frost, you know, we still had leaf cover and we still had, you know, green vines on our plants. And we're picking pumpkins that have, you know, are just, you know, alive and growing. So picking that fruit from a healthy plant is about as good as it gets as far as, you know, having a good quality fruit that's going to hold up and give the quality that you or, you know, a consumer would want. You know, Nathan, I think you really hit something right there because it seems like more often than not when someone calls calls the office here and they want to get in the commercial game of growing fruits and vegetables, it's it's like I can count on, you know, multiple times people wanting to do pumpkin growing. And I think it's what you said. It's like that first year. Oh, this is beautiful. They're like, I could do this, like, professionally. And... And then they do it and suddenly like squash bugs show up or, you know, and it's just it's like, oh, wow, this is much harder than I thought it was. Yeah. Or the, the powdery mildew gets out of control or other things. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, but yeah, I can't count how many times that I've talked to people and kind of tried to steer in the right direction. And then the next year they're like, you told me this and, and said, you were right. You know, the next year I thought it was good. And then, you know, the bugs came in, you know, they started to wilt or, you know any number of things so no it's it is it is a it is a real thing so just uh stay uh, try to stay on top of those pests especially so yeah i can confirm that we first couple of years we grew pumpkins we were fine and this year uh, our pumpkins were dead by end of july just because the squash bugs couldn't get a handle on them so maybe taking a break for a year or two from pumpkins all right our next question comes from mcdonough county um, this person grew pumpkins this year and picked them two weeks ago uh, they are already getting mushy, and they are not carved. Uh, they didn't see any bugs, uh, but they do have lots of weeds. They did have lots of weeds this year. Uh, they didn't spray anything, uh, but they did read on the Internet to spray them with bleach to clean them after picking. Uh, so they want to know, why are my pumpkins turning to mush so quickly? So the the biggest thing I would, I guess the first question I would pose back to them would be, you know, how healthy were the vines, like I just mentioned. Because when you have pumpkins growing in a lot of weeds or just really weedy mess, that those plants are obviously stressed. Um, the fruit, you know, generally don't even have a really good color. Uh, and so that's usually in those situations when you're picking fruit out of environment where they're kind of stressed, uh, especially you know, your jack-o'-lantern types, uh, if the plants had, had died, you know, there's been various diseases with all, uh, I don't know, in, down in this area, we had had some 
uh, excessive moisture in a few windows that had caused some other disease issues like downy mildew and powdery mildew. Um, if, if the plants were in any way compromised or had some disease on them or weren't really healthy or adi growing adequately, they won't have put you know the full effort to get the you know I would say like the carbohydrates and stuff into that fruit to give it good shelf life and longevity. So, uh, you know, all those pests and, and even a little bit of, you know, nutrient management into, you know, growing a healthy plant and, and a healthy fruit is probably, um, it's maybe not any one thing, but a combination of those things. So, that's, uh, it's not uncommon that, I've, that you see fruit on plants that get, you know, say severely compromised with weed pressure or other things, and they just um, they just haven't had the good enough growing conditions to really put enough effort into those uh, fruit. I did talk a little about, um, we mentioned a little about some of the bleach. Um, I really think for the most part, um, I think that any of those issues that are causing some of that is probably something internal and more related to how the plant grew than something that is infecting the fruit uh, post-harvest. So uh, while you can do that, I don't know that that is necessarily going to be a quick solve to the, the issues at hand. So, With um, growing this year, it seemed like people were putting things anywhere they could find a place for them. Um, is it possible to grow pumpkins in containers? I think it can be. Pumpkins are certainly a little more of a challenge than some things to grow in a container. Um, if I was going to do that, I would probably steer towards um, something that had a very limited vine. Uh, and so there are different vine types, as you'll see it in some catalogs. The commercial catalogs will show this. There are some, especially gourds and some of the, uh, the smaller size pumpkins, so those that are a couple pounds and less. There are some of those that are, they call it, listed as bush or semi-bush varieties. I would start with something like that. If you wanted to grow a large jack-o'-lantern, I would think a container isn't probably the best. Um, but there are some of the some smaller pumpkins and gourds that are bush type. So uh, if there's there's also some of those gourds that'll go crazy. So uh, so I would I would steer away from some of them. But there are bush types that I think could be managed in a container. But like anything, remember they need a lot of water, and so you need to get a fairly decent sized container for that plant. So that way you're not out there watering it two or three times a day, and it has a good root system to hold it uh, hold it up. And also with any container gardening, make sure you're doing something to provide some nutrients. You know, pumpkins certainly need uh, need lots of nitrogen amongst also uh, phosphorus and potassium. So if you're just using a a standard uh, peat-based uh, media, you know, make sure you're doing something to add uh, fertility, whether it be through, um, you know, liquid feeding through, you know, a weekly watering or a slow-release fertilizer because they will easily run out of nutrients and run out of juice before they're able to really come to their full potential. But the bush and semi-bush types, and there are some, some gourds and things that would fit that, that I think would do all right. Also note is that most all of your pumpkins, not only do they have the root system, of course, from the base of the plant, but in the field, you know, pumpkins will root at almost every node where there's a leaf, and especially where there's a fruit, they will set out roots. So whenever you're growing them, say in that case, like on maybe a container on a concrete surface or something else, they don't have access to, to root in those other places. Or if you do grow them and they vine off of, say, off into your yard, they will usually send down roots 
uh, along those vines as well, which is a part of the, um, the mechanism of how pumpkins actually are at least somewhat seen as being fairly resilient to dry conditions because they can send out adventitious roots or send out new roots all along the vine and uh, and help access water more than just at the base of the plant. So I think it is possible and that's just a few thoughts that I have to help kind of guide someone in success in container pumpkin growing. All right let's switch gears a little bit go from small pumpkins but how so how can we grow the giant pumpkins like the, the giant ones you see in competitions that weigh several hundred pounds and stuff. All right, so for the giant pumpkins, the first thing is you do need to get, go to your seed store or whatever, or seed resource uh, catalog, uh, online company, et cetera, and find seeds for some of these giant types. So just you can't just take any pumpkin seed and think you're gonna do something magical to it and turn into a thousand pound pumpkin. There are some specific varieties in the, the catalogs and online resources will direct you to those varieties that are known to, you know, produce those uh, larger size fruits. So that's the first thing. I cannot tell you how many times people have just, you know, told me, so well, I just tried to grow this big pumpkin. I took all this care to it and this is all I got. And say, well, you have to start with the right variety. The next thing, um, there's all kinds of things, you know, really just trying to maintain the, um, the adequate fertility and water. So um, you don't want to overdo it. Um, if you overdo it, especially early in its life with nitrogen, so if you, or if you over fertilize, you can get a lot of vine growth, but the plant will have so much uh, excessive nutrients that it won't set a lot of flowers. So that can be one thing to, over, to manage. I would, especially early in the life of that plant, I would give it some fertility, but don't don't go overboard. Now, once you have a fruit on there starting to form, then you can push the nutrients a little more. Certainly, periodic watering if it's not raining um, enough to you know provide adequate moisture, making sure that that fruit has uh, and plant has lots of water. Um, you can take, if you have, you know, within a plant, I would try to limit it to really get the maximum growth. I would remove any subsequent fruit. So usually the first fruit is kind of the dominant one um, or whatever fruit you like the shape of as they start to set fruit. Keep only one fruit on that plant if you really want to maximize the size. That way that plant is putting all of its effort into growing that one fruit as large as you can. Um, so really from there, I mentioned pest management, keeping the weeds, insects, and diseases is absolutely critical because you're trying to eliminate any stresses that that plant could have so it can put all of its effort into growing a big fruit, not trying to overcome, you know, disease or insect feeding or other things like that. So, you know, pest management, uh, fertility, and, um, and variety selection, I think are probably the, the, main, the main staples for trying to grow a large pumpkin. And I'll just add, if you do not have a tractor or a forklift, you should grow it where you plan to display it. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, they are extremely hard to, uh, hard to move without some, some extra strategies. So um, that, is, that is certainly the case. I'm sure some people may think of, you know, maybe, maybe I should put that fruit when it's small, like grow it on a pallet or something. You can, but remember that that fruit is really heavy so you need to put something because it will grow down like between the slats of a pallet you'll get like ribs in it and it could actually kind of 
engross itself into that palate because it's you know that fruit as it grows all that weight puts pressure down on the bottom of that fruit and that fruit's fairly soft as it's growing so so uh but but i have seen people do that maybe put a piece of plywood or some you know a nice flat surface or something for it to grow on another thing if it rains too much you know do try to keep it somewhere that has some decent drainage where you can control the water um, if you do hit one of those kind of monsoon type periods at the wrong time of year you want it to uh, not hold too much water the last thing and i will say i'm not going to get into any details i have heard and seen things on the internet of people doing all kinds of crazy things to pumpkins most of which i really kind of discount um, pumpkins are a plant and there's um, you know really with those things I mentioned you know nutrients and others some of these things I think just um, while it may sound odd eccentric or otherwise you know you think you're doing something uh, it's not really helping so have you ever experimented with growing giant pumpkins Nathan I have not um, you know everyone would think oh you know that would be the the kind of the, the peak thing to do I um, for one thing you know I just, I guess for me, I don't, um, I just don't find that like, um, that extra adrenaline rush from having a thousand pound pumpkin, my back just hurts just looking at it. So, or even thinking about it. So I have grown some larger size. So kind of, I guess the mini version of those, I've usually have some, I've done some orange and more recently done some larger white ones that vary from, oh, 30 on up to maybe if I get a few good ones, maybe up to a hundred pounds. Um, but even those, um, again, I think those are, are striking enough. And they're actually, I think, to me personally, I, I like those in that size. Most of them I can pretty much manage on my own or, or wield. No one wants to buy a, a, a huge pumpkin, and, and nor do I really feel like taking the effort to try to move it or otherwise. So I guess I just haven't gotten into the you know, state fair grand champion sized you know, pumpkin growing side, but I do grow some, a few larger ones, but again, they tend to be more of a novelty for people to look at versus something that uh, someone just wants to take home and pay for or pay enough money to actually, for the amount of effort it takes to grow some of them. So you've got a, or we had a couple of people in the Jacksonville area that were growing giant pumpkins and they were, they definitely were getting into it. I mean, they had shades up over their pumpkins they had fans blowing on the on the stems and stuff because they were cracking they were getting so big and to kind of keep them dry and stuff it was it was impressive and, and kind of intimidating how much time they put into to producing those things yeah there's um there's definitely some people that you know you can spend a lot of time time and, and effort into it and and there's some you know i certainly i've seen a lot of people that you know, maybe grow some of the the giant ones that are in that you know 50 to 100 pound range and and uh, but yeah when you get bigger than that then you got to really have uh, you know a, a very direct interest in in making that happen because yeah chris mentioned the logistics it takes to to, to handle that and it's not to, it's not simple anymore so so for your last question it comes from facebook and they're asking, our pumpkin patch gets invaded by weeds every year. What can we do to keep the weeds down? So there are some different things. A lot of it depends on the scale at which you uh, you want to uh, manage this. So uh, commercially, there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, 
probably the first one that I work with a lot of growers on is actually using a cover crop. So this is not, uh, unfortunately, no one of these things by itself will solve all of your problems. But having, if you're on a, a field scale or even a small, you know, tenth or quarter acre or more, you know, having something like a cereal rye or wheat to have some extra mulch on the ground uh, is really helpful. Uh, that helps to suppress some weeds and have a good kind of a, a mulched area for those fruit to grow on. So that's one thing that can can help. Commercially, we also use that uh, we have do have some herbicides available, some of which will help to basically suppress weeds from growing. So something for a homeowner, even something similar to like how we use preen as a, a pre-emergent around some plants to suppress weed emergence. So there are products out there that, that are very similar to that that work to help suppress weeds from germinating, especially some of our very, um, you know, the basic weeds, some of the, the pig weeds and, and, and grasses and things that can be problematic. So, um, so the herbicides are definitely a, uh, you know, a, for most growers, a, a practice that's used a lot of times with cover crops. Um, some will use conventional tillage, so you can, you know, certainly keep the field clean tilled and then go through and before the plants vine out again, you know, leave some space between your rows that you could run a cultivator tiller or something between them. Um, so I have, I'm a little challenged by that and some of the, uh, some of the, the soil, um, consequences of doing a lot of tillage and then also if it would happen to get wet the, the mud and things that comes from having that clean tilled soil but that's another way to do it and there then you're limited uh, within the row you're limited to hand weeding and letting those plants compete uh, nutrient management and I, or just management of the plants is certainly important because if you can keep that pumpkin plant growing adequately and producing good leaf cover that is going to once you get to a certain point that pumpkin can actually compete fairly effectively with weeds so that's a really good way to um, once you get to a certain point the pumpkins can kind of hold their own for a while but the challenge is getting to that point um, and of course the weather and things also plays into that wet years uh, all the excess moisture will help promote flushes of weeds and things coming in so so that's uh, another uh, concept so certainly Beyond that, on a smaller scale or as doable, you know, you can certainly add, you know, organic mulches like straw and things like that. Um, on commercial scale, some people do use um, black plastic mulch, which is, you know, laid over a bed. Uh, and so that's uh, an, that helps suppress at least within the fruiting row or the planting row that gives you some suppression of weeds. So that's some different concepts in there to, to try depending on, you know, what you've used before and uh, what options you have at hand. Nathan, you mentioned adventitious roots forming along the vine earlier. Is it too destructive, say, if someone is getting overtaken by weeds in like mid-August, if they wanted to pull up the vines and put mulch down then? Um, the biggest thing, um, you can pull up like the ends of the vines uh, a little bit, but after, after a certain point, if you start pulling up, say, a pumpkin vine that's eight feet long and you start pulling up, you'll get to a point after that pumpkin plant has grown most of the time that that's rooted down almost to the point that without kind of cutting the roots you're probably going to break the vine um, they really do root so you know pretty well but you can easily most of the time like that end oh i'm going to say roughly two to four feet of the vine you know you can pull up and, and move we've already 
Um, I've already done that whenever in our fields we'll leave dry valleys to drive through for harvest and spraying and just general maintenance. And of course, you know, inevitably the vines will grow out in there and I don't want to trample them down with a truck or tractor. So I'll, I'll tend to occasionally, you know, walk through on some of the really vigorously vining varieties and I'll walk through and take, you know, the end three or four feet of the vine, just grab the end of it and just throw it back in. Um, sometimes they call that, um, or I call it vine combing. So you're basically pulling those vines back. Um, you can do the same thing if for some reason you had two varieties you wanted to kind of keep separated and they started growing to each other, just kind of make that vine do like a U-turn and kind of go back a different direction. So, But what, at a certain point, um, I do think you would probably do maybe more harm than good uh, to to pull up the vines and hopefully if you did have weed issues I would be trying to put some mulches out I would do that earlier before the vines run as we call it or before those vines really start to take off and take off a lot of space because that plant will sit there and come kind of almost like a bush state for maybe a month or so and then after that all of a sudden it's like a switch turns on and those vines will go from you know the plants could be six or eight feet apart and then you know 10 days later you can't walk between the rows so there's there's a window in there that if you can catch it that would be the most ideal time to put down the mulch without having the extra effort and hassle of trying to move vines and, and also I'm curious about your cereal rye cover crop. Is that something you can plant after harvest in the fall or, or do you put that in in the spring? So usually what, what you would do is uh, either the wheat or cereal rye are all winter winter cereals. So they're grains that will grow over the winter. So what I would do is, you know, even here after uh, the pumpkin season ends, say, uh, you know, in, a few weeks now go ahead and go in and you can you know plant your cereal rye or wheat whichever you would have uh, available and then have that growing in the area where you want uh, want to have pumpkins for the next year so it's usually a, a fall planning for your next year's crop so we'll we'll close out nathan is there anything you want to promote i think the the biggest things you know i you know share is we do have the uh, a fruit and vegetable newsletter for especially for those interested in commercial uh, fruit and vegetable production. It's called the Illinois Fruit and Vegetable News. And so that is a great resource. Uh, and you can get an email update when that comes out once a month. Uh, that's a, a really good, uh, just a, a good commercial kind of resource. The other thing is also on our YouTube channel, I mentioned on the Local Food Small Farms team, we did have a pumpkin field day this year. It was at least in part in virtual. We actually have a pumpkin field day playlist, and so we still have some things to add to that, but we have some um, insect and disease and weed management uh, topics that uh, along with we'll have a huge uh, a couple of videos we're going to be posting on variety selection from a big variety trial we had so there's all kinds of uh, of information there that are for the most part short videos we have the recorded field day which i think is about an hour but then we have a lot of between i would say five to maybe 18 or 20 minute videos on different specific pest topics uh, and and production topics. So there's a, a playlist there you can look through and like say we will have a few more videos coming up here probably within a month or so as we get harvest wrapped up and get some of those materials up and posted as well. So I think those would be the main things I just want to share and, and certainly always happy to 
help answer any pumpkin related questions anyone would have fantastic and we will share those in the notes below in the podcast well nathan johanning commercial ag educator and pumpkin master extraordinaire thank you so much for being on the show today no problem thank you for the invite and folks thank you for listening to the good growing podcast it is produced by wendy ferguson and edited by me Chris Enroth. As always, a special thanks go out to our co-hosts, Ken and Katie, for being here each and every week, even if they are on vacation. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, uh, Chris and, and Katie and Nathan. And uh, I'm going to go clean the garage now. <laughs> yeah, thanks for all the information, Nathan. And thanks, Ken and Chris. No You're problem. the MVSH Ken, most valuable show host. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Yes, folks, he's bouncing between e-learning, cleaning the garage, and watching, catching up on his favorite streaming shows right now. So uh, next week, we will be chatting with Casey Athey. Casey is an entomologist. She's with uh, U of I Extension. She works with specialty crops. But we're going to be talking about spiders. Being so close to Halloween, it is about time that we get into spiders. I know Ken is excited for that one. <laughs> I, I am very excited for this. <laughs> All right, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. And as always, keep on growing. <laughs>